this is the season of Advent, um, or coming up on the season of Advent. That's beginning in, in a couple of days. And um, there. Um, <laughs> let's start all over again. Where were we? So, um, so this is the, the we're, we're preparing for the season of Advent, and um, the the thing about Advent is it's a time of preparation. Um, and uh, it may seem, because of where it's located in the in the calendar, it may seem as if we're preparing for Christmas. But it's not a season of pre- preparation for Christmas, because Christmas has already happened. So what we are preparing for in Advent is we're preparing for the second coming. That We believe that Jesus will come again just as he came the first time at Christmas. He will come again in glory at some point in the future. And... Um, that's what we are preparing ourselves for. And the reason we look back at Christmas is because it reminds us that God is faithful, that God keeps his promises, um, even when the promises are hundreds of years old. Um, so we remember God's faithfulness, that it's been 500 years, or it's been hundreds of years in, in the case of the Messianic prophecies. People were told hundreds of years before the time of Christ that 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 God would send a Savior, that God would send this Messiah to save the world. And so they waited and waited and waited, but ultimately God kept his promise. And so, for example, in the passage we heard today, um, uh, the, the writer of Revelation, John, he tells us that... Um, that everyone will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the nations of the world will mourn for him. He's quoting one of those messianic scriptures. He's quoting from Zechariah chapter 12, and uh, we'll look at that again in a minute. But um, he's quoting that this passage from the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah wrote about 500 B.C. So in the case of that passage, and, and there were others, but that's probably about average. There were some that were younger and some that were older, but probably 500 years is a typical time. So so we look back at those those. Uh, prophetic passages about Christmas to say, yes, it's been a long time, but we trust God because God keeps his promises. Even if they take centuries to fulfill, God ultimately will keep his promises. But it's worthwhile to take some time this day before we plunge into Advent, before we plunge into that season of of looking forward to the second coming. It's worth some time to pause and deal with that elephant in the room because because it's been 2,000 years. And yes, we can say, sure, you know, God keeps his promises, but, but really, I mean, 2,000 years, that's a long time to be waiting. And if you've said to yourself, you know, is this really ever going to happen? And you know, when, when your eyes kind of glaze over, when you read in the scriptures and Jesus says, you know, be ready, you know, the Son of Man will come as a thief in the night. And you go, yeah, but what night? It's been 2,000 years. You know, I'm not worried about a thief who's coming sometime in, in you know, 2,000 years from now. I'm worried about a thief coming tomorrow. So it, it becomes more and more difficult for us to read the passages about the return of Christ because of this long period of time. And so we wrestle with the question of how long is so long that you can kind of put it out of mind. That's, that's the elephant in the room when it comes to Advent is how long is too long? The good news is that that's not a new question. Um, they were already asking the question how long. They were already asking that question as early as the end of the first century. People were wondering um, when when Jesus was going to come back. And the reason is because Jesus said he would be right back. Um, in the book of Revelation, he who is the faithful witness, we already heard about that a little bit. I'll, I'll, we'll talk more. But the faithful witness to all these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And I looked up the Greek for the word soon. I was just, just going to make sure that I understood soon correctly. Soon is, the, is, is a word that is related to our word um, for tachometer. 
So, you know, the thing that tells you how fast your engine is running, it's a word that means speed. It means fast. It means right away. So when Jesus says, I'm coming soon, the Greek actually says, I'm coming soon. And so what does Jesus mean when he says, I'm coming soon? I'll be right back. You know, don't take out any magazine subscriptions. But then he's gone for 2,000 years. What do you do? You know, how do you, how do we interpret the question of soon. And they were asking that same question after just 60 or 70 years, which really isn't surprising either. So they were asking the question, when is, when is exactly as soon? The other reason is because they were under pressure. This is not something we have to deal with in our culture, but in their culture, um, the Christian movement was always, for the first couple of centuries at least, it was always a, an underground movement, and at times it was an illegal movement. And so depending on who the emperor was or the local governor, it could be prohibited, in which case there, were, there was a persecution for people who are Christians. And that still happens today in some places. Fortunately, it's not something we have to deal with in our country. But they were in a lot of pressure. They were under a lot of pressure to quit being Christians. So they're kind of going, I don't know how much longer I can go on. When is soon? So they were wondering, when is soon? They're asking the same basic question that we have. Scholars who study the Bible, they look for passages that say, that, that reflect this concern about the delay of the parousia. Parousia is a, is a Bible word. Um, it's really not even a Bible word. It's a academic word um, that is applied to the Bible. Parousia means, when is he coming back? So um, the delay of when is he coming back? That was the question they were asking in passages like this. In um, Second Peter, he asked the question, um, he's answering the question, uh, when is Jesus coming back? And he says, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. And he explains how for the, the Lord a thousand years is as a day and, and uh, a day is as a thousand years. So he says, uh, he says that it's not slow the way you think of slow. Um, but that raises, you know, that, that illustrates how there were people already by the time um, of the, the second letter of Peter, people were already wondering when. Can I really take this thing seriously when you tell me Jesus is coming back, but it's been 60 or 70 years? And for us, it hasn't been 60 or 70 years. It's been 2,000 years. It's coming up very closely on 2,000 years. And we say, well, what kind of, what kind of soon is that? And so we're going to look today at the reading from, a reading from one of the people who was wrestling with this very problem, uh, a man named John. And, uh, John begins his letter by explaining he was exiled to the island of Patmos, for preaching the word of God and for his testimony about Jesus. Because remember, people in that time were under a lot of pressure not to be Christians. And he was exiled to the island of Patmos. A lot of apostles were were um, executed um, and somehow... Um, John escaped that, but if your if your vision of the island of Patmos is you know an Aegean cruise and some beautiful blue water and a nice nice uh, sandy beach, that's not probably the right image. So uh, just to kind of orient us, this is the um, the Mediterranean, and you can see there's you know the Italy boot and so forth. So we're going to look at that section right there, and. Um, uh, the Asia, when, when he talks about um, Asia, we'll come to Asia in a minute. When he talks about Asia, he's talking about Asia Minor. So we're going to zoom in just on that little corner of Asia Minor. And uh, so that's that's where he's talking about. And then uh, one more zoom, and uh, we're going to zoom in on that part. And that's Patmos. So Patmos is this little island. And uh, uh, if you're thinking of, you know, a beautiful Aegean uh, vacation, probably a better image would be Alcatraz because because that's what he was doing there. He was exiled. He would have been probably on a chain gang of some kind, uh, busting rocks in the sun um, and not fighting the law, but the law of one. So um, 
So uh, that's that's where Patmos is. That's what John is doing. But while he's there, he has this vision. And he says, wow, I have to write this down. I have to send this in a letter to the people back in the churches in Asia because they need to hear what what is in my vision because it answers this question. It addresses the question, how long, what is what is the holdup, what's going on? And that's basically his intro to the entire book of Revelation. He's saying that this this letter answers the the question of what is the holdup how can we seriously take jesus how, how seriously can we take jesus when he says soon so he writes this letter and so that's what we're going to look at here he says this letter is from john to the seven churches in the province of asia so john we've heard about he's probably the same john who wrote the the gospel according to john we don't know that but but that's a, a early tradition it says that that's true so he writes a letter to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Um, some people say, well, maybe it was these specific seven churches, and they would have known exactly who they were. But other people say seven is a, is a very important number for John. It means the totality or the completeness. It's a perfect number. So he could mean this is all the churches that matter or all the churches that really are in Asia. So... We've already seen where Asia is. The province of Asia, um, for us, that's not the whole, you know, for us, Asia is the whole continent. Um, but if you say Asia Minor, we just mean the area where modern-day Turkey is. In in that era, uh, Asia was actually smaller than that. It was just the west coast of Asia Minor. So uh, you might think California and Oregon, that kind of area um, of Asia Minor. So that was the province of Asia. So that's where he's writing to. So just that little area there that's called Asia, or that great big area called Asia. So he, he begins with a salutation, as letters did in those days. He says, grace and peace to you. So grace and peace to you. Um, from and then who who is this grace from so so to whom is he granting or wishing them grace um, the answer is from the one who is who always was and who is still to come so that is god um, uh, how do i know that because it says in verse 8 and we'll get there in a minute so um, so the one who always was so this is the eternal god the one who who is presently but also used to be and still will be in the future the one who is still to come so him but also from the sevenfold spirit before his throne and again, there's a lot of speculation about exactly what spirit is this. Is this is this a separate spirit that's associated with each of those seven churches? Or is it, again, this idea that seven is a way of saying perfect? So the perfect spirit before us in the Holy Spirit. So a lot of speculation about who these are. But then he says, and from Jesus Christ. And he says a lot more about Jesus Christ than he says about either of them. So what does he say about Jesus? He says, he is the faithful witness to these things. He's saying, the letter I'm about to write, the whole book of Revelation, this letter I'm going to write you, Jesus is the one who testified these things to me. So he's still around. We haven't seen him lately, but I had a vision of him, and he told me a bunch of stuff. So he is the faithful witness to these things. He is the first to rise from the dead. So if he doesn't come back tomorrow, or if he doesn't come back in the next 30 years or the next 70 years, that's okay, because he's already demonstrated that the grave has no power over him or anyone else. The grave is subject to his authority. We don't have to fear death. So we can be impatient, but we don't have to be afraid, ultimately, of him coming back after we've already passed away. So he says we don't have to worry about that. And then he says what's really the key to the whole book of Revelation. He says he is the ruler of the kings of the world, that we don't see him. Right? He has not come back on our schedule. He's come, he's coming back on his own schedule, but we don't see him. But here's the thing you can take away. He is already 
the ruler of the kings of the world. So if you find yourself exiled to Patmos, it's not because he forgot. And oh wait, I, that's right, I promised them I'd get back, but I got, you know, I got binge watching Netflix or something and, and, you know, oops, you know, 70 years went by. He says, no, that's not, that's not what happened. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And there's nothing that happens on earth that does not happen without his knowledge and his consent. It doesn't mean he approves of everything, but he grants permission. Everything that happens, even if you find yourself busting rocks on Patmos, that's because he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. His kingdom is already present in um, in uh, uh, some form here, and it will be ultimately realized when he returns. So he says, Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the world. And then he says this doxology. If you've ever heard the word doxology, you saw it in our, in our program. The, there's a song that is called the doxology. We sang it a few minutes ago. The doxology, a doxology is a, is a um, giving glory to. So whenever people would sing, you know, uh, a song that gives glory to God, that is called a doxology. And he does that here. He says, all glory to him. And then he says some more things. And then he ends it up with all glory and power to him. So when people in the Bible say glory to God, uh, what is it? A Christmas glory to God in, in the highest and, and peace on earth to people of goodwill. That, that, um, that phrase is a doxology. Whenever you see something that says glory to God, that is a doxology. So he says a doxology, but um, I'm more interested in what's in the middle of the doxology, what's in between those glories. He says, who is Jesus? Jesus is the one, him who loves us. So uh, he, he loves you more than he loves Netflix. He, you know, he's not up in heaven watching Netflix and got distracted. He loves us. He knows you're on he knows you're on Patmos. He knows you're dealing with whatever you're dealing with back in Ephesus or Colossae or the other cities in Asia. He knows what's going on. And for whatever reason, he has granted permission to the kings of the earth to do what they're doing. But it's not because he doesn't love you. It's not because he's forgotten about you. He does love you. And um, we can trust him. He says he loves us. And he has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He has freed us from our sins. Uh, we don't have to worry when we approach God that that um, that God is. We are rightly related to God because of what Jesus has done to us, and that's important done for us. And um, and that's important because he's made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. We'll hear more about what that means in a minute. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. But then he kind of puts this in context. How do we know, you know, how should we have expected this? And then he cites some, some passages from the Hebrew Scriptures. He cites Daniel. He says, look, he comes with the clouds of heaven. So what does that mean? Um, in an oral culture, these phrases would have kind of jumped out at us. We would have said, I've heard that before. I've heard that part about coming with the clouds of heaven. So uh, we heard from Daniel. Uh, Daniel has this scene, this vision of, of the heavenly uh, um, uh, court. And he says, I watched the thrones were put in place, and the ancient ones sat down to judge. And as my vision continued in that night, I saw someone like a son of man, a human being, coming with the clouds of heaven. So it is this guy... Um, the, the, the one like a son of man who is given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world. So this is the one that God has put in place to deal with the problems of the world. That the Ancient of Days has seen all the problems on the earth and um, the, the kings of the world who are in opposition to God. And Daniel says, uh, Daniel says, I've seen, um, I've seen how God has dealt with that by, by bringing this son of man into authority. His rule is eternal. Um, that that if it seems like it hasn't started, if it seems like 
it, it's not, he hasn't come back, so how could it be ruling, how could he be ruling, or maybe it's already over and we missed it. He says, no, his rule is eternal, it will never end, his kingdom will never be destroyed. So, when Daniel, I hate to kind of dig even deeper, but in Daniel he says, what the clouds of heaven, what does that mean? Does that mean look up someday and you'll see Jesus coming down through the clouds? It could mean that. Um, there's certainly a, a school of thought that believes so. Um, but, um, but another possibility is this is the kind of cloud that we hear about in the book of Exodus. Moses goes up into the cloud, the cloud that's associated with the presence of God. And he went up on the mountain, Moses on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Or in the transfiguration, Jesus is up on the mountain with his disciples. And while he's speaking, a bright cloud overshadows them. And from the cloud, a voice says, this is my son. So when it says coming with the clouds of heaven, we don't know if that means actually just atmospheric clouds or the particular cloud that is the glory of God. So in any event, Daniel's saying, that he sees him coming with the clouds of heaven. So he says that, and then he quotes from Zechariah, the part we already looked at, Zechariah. Zechariah says, I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer in the family of David and the people of Jerusalem, and then they will look on me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as for an only son. They will grieve bitterly for him as for a firstborn son who has died. So uh, so what John is doing is he's saying, I've seen a vision and... Um, it is it is a glorious vision, and it comes with a biblical pedigree. So what I'm going to tell you is exactly what, what makes sense in light of what the scriptures told us about. It told us about a king who was coming, told us about a king who was crucified, and now I'm going to tell you what he says about the end times, about the future. So so it says that, but not only does it come with the scriptural authority, it also comes with this, design, this, this divine seal. So he closes this passage by saying, I, by quoting God, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. So God, God uh, uh, puts his stamp of approval. What you're hearing from John is authorized. So he's saying it's got a biblical pedigree, and it's got a divine seal of approval. So it's a great way of saying what John is telling you is it meets with God's ap- approval. It is it is a true thing that John is telling us. So that's that's what the passage says. And and if you boil it down, he doesn't tell us what soon means. He doesn't say soon means you know September twenty third, uh, twenty seventeen, like that one guy thought it did, right? So no, he doesn't tell us exactly what soon means. But he says, in the meantime, you can be assured that Jesus is still reigning. Jesus didn't just go away. Jesus isn't that guy we used to hear about. You know, I used to have a thing with Jesus, but now he's been gone, and so it's that's all behind. He says, no, Jesus is still reigning. Jesus is still in heaven. So what do we do in the meantime? And that brings us back to the middle part of that passage where he says, he, Jesus, has made us a kingdom of priests. So what does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? You are part of a kingdom of priests. So sometimes we think about the people up in the front, the people who stand up here and tell you things out of the Bible, and we say they're the priests or, or they're the preachers or the reverends. We have this kind of distinction. So what is a priest, and why would John say we are all part of a kingdom of priests? This is what he says, though. So what are, what are priests? Priests are go-betweens. Priests are the people who get between you and God. And in the ancient world, everybody would have known that. This is, this is, um, uh, a picture of one of, one of uh, many temples you see all over the ancient world. This is the temple to Artemis. It's just outside of Ephesus, and it's huge. You can't see how huge it is. It looks like it's a temple, but, but then you see 
the little person down there in the corner. This is a gigantic building. Uh, temples were, were a huge part of the economy. They had all kinds of significance in that era, and the priests were the ones who ran that economy. So, so when you, when you said, you know, I think we're going to have bad crops this year, or maybe the invaders are going to come from another country and, and wreck everything, we better make sure our sacrifices are all in line. Who do you go to find out? You go to the priest, and the priest tells you, you know, you need to do more, right? Because that's what priests do. So everybody in those days would have understood what a priest was. And John says, we are all those priests. We all have that authority. Another picture I can't resist. Um, should have stopped already, but um, so uh, this is a, this is one of those ruins we looked at when we were there. So this is a, a, a ruin, and you can read up there in fine print in in uh, on the on the, the white side is is Latin, and it says Emperor Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, high priest. So think about that. The third title, right? He's he's the emperor. He's the son of the divine Augustus, and he's high priest in order. What, 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 how, how do I categorize myself? The third most important thing he can come up with is he's high priest. Because in the ancient world, to be a priest meant you were significant because you got between the people and God. And what John says is there's no one else between you and God. You have direct access to God. There is no priest who stands between you and God because of what Jesus has done. So there's no intermediary. In the, in the book of Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews says this. He says, let us come boldly to the throne. You can just walk right into the throne room of God. You can just present your case right before God. You don't have to give it to a priest. You don't have to give it to anybody. There is no intermediary. Go directly to God, and there you will receive his mercy and find grace to help when we need it most. That's one of the things it means to be a priest. Other things priests do is they offer sacrifices, right? We understand that. In the ancient world, you'd offer a sacrifice of grain or wine or, or olive oil or an animal sacrifice. And um, uh, Christians don't do that. We believe that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice that all the ancient world's uh, sacrifices pointed toward. All the ancient Hebrew sacrificial system pointed toward the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So Paul tells us, don't do any more sacrifices. Sacrifices are done. The only sacrifice God wants now is for us to give our bodies to God because of what he's done for you. Let your body, your living body, be a sacrifice. Your, your, the way you carry out your life should be a sacrifice to God. And in a sense, this is almost redundant. Because remember, Jesus is the king. Jesus is ruling the world. And kings tell you what to do anyway. And he's, he's saying... That's one way to think about it. But another way to think about it is you have made a sacrifice of your life to God. So either way, you're presenting your life to God and saying, it's yours, do with me what you will. So he says, make your life a sacrifice. So um, so what does he say? He says, "Please, I plead to you to give your bodies to God. Let your bodies be a living and a holy sacrifice, the kind he'll find acceptable. So the other thing um, they, they do, priests do, is they offer sacrifices. And the last thing they do is they represent uh, the people to God and God to the people. So stop and think about that, right? You know, you've got that temple, that great big temple. You know, God is somewhere in the idol, somewhere in that statue, somewhere. And you go in and you offer the sacrifice to them. You're representing the crowd of people out there who brought the sacrifice. Okay, and vice versa. You come out and say, next year is going to be great crops, Right? You're representing the God to the people, right? 
That is our role as Christians. Our role as Christians is to represent the people before God. How do we do that? Prayer, right? We just we just had an intercessory prayer a few moments ago. You do this all the time in your regular life. You know of somebody who's got concerns, you bring them before God. You are you are representing that person before God. That is your vocation as a Christian to represent the people of the world before God. But you also represent God to the people. In um, in Romans, Paul says this, when God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. He says, represent God. Help people in the world understand what kind of God we're talking about. Not the angry God who hurls lightning bolts, but a God who blesses people who curse them. He says, even in the face of persecution, even when you find yourself exiled to Patmos, represent God to people by loving them, by treating them the way that God would treat them. He says, this is our vocation as a kingdom of priests, that we can carry this out however long it takes for Jesus to return. He may be back later today. He said he was going to be back soon. And it could be another 2,000 years. We don't know. But in the meantime, he calls us to carry out this vocation of being a kingdom of priests. Let's be a kingdom of priests. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, um, 2,000 years is a long time. Uh, we believe Jesus, but <clears throat> but we don't know what soon means. Um, you have a different perspective on soon, and so, um, Lord, I'm not sure if we are ready for your second coming. And so we ask you to prepare our hearts in, during this season of Advent. Let us take seriously the reality that you promised to return. Um, help us to hold loosely to the things of this world, knowing that they are passing away and that and that only Christ um, is eternal. But Lord, in the meantime, whether that's today or 2,000 years from now, we pray that you would help us to be that kingdom of priests that Christ calls us to be. Help us to represent the people to you and help us to represent you to the people. Help us to give our lives as a sacrifice to you and help us to live into the reality that there is no intermediary. We can all come right before your throne because of Christ. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.